We're in the book of Nehemiah. It's in the middle of your Old Testament. It happens at the end of the Old Testament, just before uh, Matthew, about four, uh, it happened before the New Testament period. The book of Esther is about the political climate of the day. The book of Ezra is about a guy who goes back and rebuilds the temple and starts to rebuild the walls but gets stopped. The book of Nehemiah, which is the book that we're in today, is a book about a guy who uh, was a Persian cupbearer for the king. He's a Jewish guy, but he worked for a Persian king. He, uh, in his world, uh, had the best of the best of the best. But he was burdened for this little place called Jerusalem because the walls were not built. So we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, and it talks about the idea of Nehemiah's burden for it, and he prays for about four months. God answers a prayer and allows him to go to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem's 800 miles away. So he makes that trek to Jerusalem with the king's blessing. Nehemiah chapter 2, he comes up with a plan and presents it to the people, but of course there's opposition from the outside. Nehemiah chapter 3, we talk about all the people that were involved with uh, the building of the wall and how God used everybody in that group uh, from every kind of walk of life. It wasn't, there were only certain people that got used. We get to Nehemiah chapter 4 and we find out about this external conflict where people are trying to get the people to live in fear and scared and everything else. And Nehemiah continually turns them back to God and focuses on what God has them to do. And then last week we talked about Nehemiah chapter 5 where there was an internal problem. The internal problem was they were taking advantage, the wealthy people were taking advantage of people. And we talked about how Nehemiah stopped the work, he called everybody together and he confronted the situation and he said, we're going to deal with this, and we're going to do this right. And um, Nehemiah asked some very, very difficult things of the rich people. And because they were abusing their wealth, um, Nehemiah looked at him and said, you need to stop charging interest, which under the Old Testament law they were not supposed to be doing anyway. He said, you need to give them back their thing because they're sacrificing here in order for this to happen. And miraculously, in Nehemiah chapter 5, we talked about this last week, the rich people responded and said, okay. They said, sure, we'll do it. What you're saying is right, and that's what we'll do. Now, what I didn't talk about is what we're going to talk about this morning at the end of Nehemiah chapter 5, and and it comes down to this. Why is it that the people and the rich people had this respect and awe for Nehemiah? I mean, he's pretty much an outsider, He's traveled 800 miles. He's an outsider. He wasn't, this wasn't his world. These were his people, but this wasn't his world. So how is it that Nehemiah was able to come in as an outsider, gain the trust and respect, not just of the, the poor people, but of the rich people as well, to where they were willing to follow him? And in that, in the story we're going to look at this morning, it gives us some tremendous insight For if we're going to reach the world for Jesus Christ, if we're going to reach our friends and neighbors and communities for Christ, this is the kind of people we have to be. And you're going to see in Nehemiah some characteristics of leadership, characteristics of a godly person that we need to incorporate in our lives as well. So that's where we're going this morning. Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to pick up the story. Here's what it says. Moreover, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, and we have to stop right here because at this point, Nehemiah's relationship with the people changed. See, up until this point, he was an outsider trying to fix the walls. 
Now the king of Persia has made him the governor. So now he's gone from a, I'm going to help you rebuild the walls, to now I have a political position in Jerusalem. And by the way, he's going to stay in this position for 12 years. So 12 years he's going to be a governor there in Jerusalem. Um, And so in essence, he gets a promotion, a big promotion, to go from you're the king's cupbearer to now you're the ruler over Jerusalem um, for, quote-unquote, the Persian king. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Notice what he said. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's position, provisions. We'll talk about that in a second. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, and they took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Going on. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah starts out by, by explaining to us that he got a promotion. Now, it, it, you know how this goes. When you get a promotion, there are certain things that come with your promotion. You know, usually you get a, a plaque that gives you a different title, or maybe new business cards, or maybe a different office. Or maybe all of a sudden, you know, you have a different salary and a different compensation package and a different this or a different that. And in the military, it's a different rank. So now you've got more people that are under you. you. You know how all of that goes. In this world, here's the way it normally worked. The way that it normally worked was the king, Artaxerxes, promoted him as governor. And what that meant was this. What that meant is now the king would feed him and take care of him. Often, the king gave you a whole lot more than you needed. So what was common in this day is they would then take the extra food that they had and they would sell it and they would pocket the money. So think about this for a minute. You know, um, it would be like somebody, you know, somebody that the king is giving them, giving the governor food. The governor goes, you know what, this is more than I, and we're going to get a list here in a minute of how much food. Um, uh, they, these guys consume. He, you know, you've got more, you've got excess, so you would sell it and you'd pocket the money. The other thing that you would do, these guys would do, is they would tax the people kind of a special king's tax. So typically in this area, it was 40 shekels of silver. So what we would say is now that, now again, remember, up until this point, no walls, no city, no governor, no taxes, no anything. I mean, this is just a, a, a desolate place. Now, all of a sudden, the king says, hey, we got a governor and we got to support him. So, all of a sudden, now, what would typically happen is there would be a shekel tax, a 40, 40 shekel tax in order to line the coffers to pay for the governor, to be able to give the governor all the stuff the governor needs. In addition to that, what would happen is, so let's say, as an example, let's say I'm governor of Hornick, okay? So, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the governor of Hornick, all right? So, you know, in this case, what would happen is the government would give me a a huge stipend to be able to be the governor. And it was, more, it was more food than I could have, so I would start a little corner stand, and I would sell it, and I would make some money there. And then I would say, okay, now that Hornick has a governor, because we've never had a governor before, we're going to have a Hornick tax, you know, of $400 a month, or $400 a year. Everybody's got to pay $400 a year so that I can be governor, okay? And then what we would do is, is, is let's say, Lael. Um, Lael's a farmer in, in a Hornick area. Not anymore, you're retired, I know. 
Yeah. Um, but Lael wants a favor of the governor of Hornick. So Lael comes to the governor of Hornick, me, and says, hey, look, I need a favor. And I'm like, well. And I goes, well, I'll tell you what. You know what? You farm next to my ground. And I got that little 10-acre strip. How about if I give you that 10-acre strip and you make this happen? And I go, sure, we'll make that deal. So now I get a little more land. And I'm getting 40 shekels a month or a year from people. And the government's given me, taking care of all my food stock. So to be governor was a, I mean, it's a good deal if you're the governor. Now, not in Nehemiah's case, because in Nehemiah's case, he was a king's cupbearer. He had even better than a governor. But that's what, that's, that's what normally happens. <laughs> and so notice what had happened. He says there, um, and, and then anybody who worked for me would be ruling other people. And because I'm governor now, guess what? I, I don't have to work. I don't have to go. Again, what was Nehemiah doing before he became governor? He was building the walls. Now all of a sudden, you don't have to build walls. Notice what he says. He said, and by all my servants were gathered there for the work. He said, I continued to work on the wall. I didn't have to as governor, but I went and every day. I looked at all my people and said, okay, guys, let's go. We're going to go work on the wall. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Nehemiah. We didn't sign up for working on the wall. We signed up for being your support staff as governor. Nehemiah said, no, no, no. If you're my support staff, you're going to work on the wall. Let's go. So notice what happens. It goes on. And he gives us a little more insight. He said, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came from the nations around us. So he said, so every day. He said, I got 150 people, plus other people who are visiting the area. Now that which was prepared for me daily. I thought of Cammie and the girls when, when, this, when I read this passage. That prepared for me daily was one ox, six sheep, fowl, chickens, uh, were prepared for me. And once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. So in words, he said every day, we had to feed 150 plus people. So every day when we got up, we would butcher an ox. We'd butcher six sheep. Again, they didn't have refrigeration and all that stuff, so that's what you had to eat. We'd butcher a whole bunch of chickens, and every 10 days we got a whole new truckload of wine. Okay? Now, we just brought in, you know how much work it was just to go to the store and get, we, we ended up this week with nine cases of water up here. Okay? Um, you know, the wine thing we're not going to do. But, I mean, so we got, we got the, the <laughs> although there are days. No. Uh, anyway. Um, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> So he says, you know, this is what? All kinds of wine. Notice what he says. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's precision because the bondage was heavy on the people. Now, there are two ways of thinking about this. One is, Nehemiah rejected. This is what he did every day. He fed 150 people. They slaughtered one ox for 52 days. They slaughtered six sheep. For 52 days, they, they killed a whole bunch of chicken, and poultry, and whatever other kind of bird they ate during that day. Um, and they drank a lot of wine because, again, they didn't have bottled water back then. Uh, and so notice what he says. He said, this, was, this is what we did every day. One option is Nehemiah paid for it all out of his pocket. The second option, which I think is probably a little more deal, is that Nehemiah was given a certain percentage from the king. And normally, what they would do is they would take care of, of the governor, and he would take care of a few choice people, and then he'd make money off the rest of them. I think what Nehemiah did was he said, you know what? 
if this will feed 150 people, then we're going to feed 150 people. In other words, Nehemiah didn't benefit at all from this provision. And he said, I didn't take what was really allotted to me. I didn't take advantage of my position because of who I was. He said, what I did is I gave to the people. And he said, he said we took care of every day. He said, we fed over 150 people. Because notice what he said, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Now, I'm not going to use my position to, to um, take advantage of these other people. Again, he had just looked at the, the wealthy people who had, were taking advantage of him and told him to stop it. And even in that, he said, look, I haven't done what you're doing. And Nehemiah said, look, I've set the example here. And, and he does this even as governor. And by the way, the walls get built in 52 days. He doesn't do this for 12 years. He doesn't, he doesn't take advantage of his, his, his position in, in, in being over top of these people. And then he ends with a very short prayer, which I think is awesome. Listen to what he says at the very, very end. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. Nehemiah now, you see a spiritual dimension of Nehemiah where he talks about what he has done. And he says, he, he, first of all, he goes to God. He says, God, he said, I want you to know what I've done. Not concerned about everybody else knowing about this, but God, I want you to know what I've done. Because he's literally living for an audience of one. And then he says, what I have done for this people. He said, I'm not doing it for myself. You know, I, I'm not in this position for myself. He said, I'm doing it to help these people. And God, I just want you to know what I have done and why I have done it. And I want you to be aware of it, God. That's all he says. He's not, he's not concerned about everybody else paying attention. That's all he's concerned about. So let's talk about some things we can learn, because I think there's a lot of really great principles here. Um, here's the first one. One of the things that I, I think you see here is, and this is the thing I love about Nehemiah, you see what servant leadership really looks like. The, when Christ was here, that's what he taught. He said, look, you, you want to have the corner office, then you serve everybody. He said, you want to be at the top, Go to, go to the back of the line. You want to be first, go, go be last. Jesus teaches this idea of if you really want to serve, then if you, if you really want to, to, to gain, then, then you give. You, it, it's, it's opposite the way the world works. And, you know, we're taught, you know, just climb, 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 climb. Don't worry about who you step on, da, 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 da. But, but good leaders understand this servant leadership principle. And what, what you see in the life of Nehemiah is you see this idea that I can make a difference as a governor, so I'm going to go ahead and be a governor. I'm going to jump into the political arena. Now, here, here's, here's what I see in Christians, Christianity today, and this, this is what concerns me. We do a lot of griping, complaining, and whining. But we're not getting involved. In other words, what you see in Nehemiah is, here's a guy who's in Shushan the palace, chapter 1, 
He's got a great gig. He's eating the best food. He's, eating, he's doing great. They come to him and say, hey, Jerusalem's in, in, in ruins. The walls aren't built. And he's, he, he's burdened. And he prays and he fasts and he prays and he fasts. And all of a sudden, an opportunity comes up for him to tell the king and to go. And he goes. 800 miles, leaves it all, goes to serve these people. It wasn't about him. It was about serving these people. Here's what I see in Christianity, and this is what, what bothered me. I listen to people whine and complain about politics. But you know what? Why don't we run? Oh, do you know how ugly that is? Yeah. That's why it's easier to whine and complain rather than get involved. Right? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. You know, you know. I watch people complain about, you know, well, our school system is blah, 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 blah. Why don't you volunteer? Oh, you know how hard that would be? You know what kind of you know what kind of you know uh, sacrifice that would be? Yeah, I do. I'm married to a teacher. You know? Again, you know me. I'm not afraid to step on toes. Um, I watch people complain about, you know, well, you know, that coach or that, that, that referee... Well, go be a good coach or go be a good referee. I mean, right or wrong, if, if we're going to change it, we're going to get involved. How many people step back and go, you know, well, they're not doing anything, da 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 But yet, when you have an opportunity to get on a committee, to have a voice, to have a say, to help, I mean, where's the servant leadership on our part? At what point do we step back and say, you know what, I need to go get engaged and get involved? The church isn't within the walls. The church is outside the wall. And we have to come to a point that we say, you know what? I am willing to serve in order to make a difference. And that's what you see with Nehemiah. You know, and you go, well, you, you, don't, you don't know how hard it is. I'd be the only person. Exactly. Exactly. And Nehemiah was willing, well, willing to say, you know what? I will go serve and I will do that. And I think if we're going to make a difference as Christians in the world, we've got to stop complaining and start getting engaged and getting involved. You know, one of the things that we do here is we try to minimize the activities here, the church-y activities. Those activities are for us pretty much. They're for us to encourage each other and have a good time. We invite people out and we let them be a part of it and, and, and all that. But the reality is one of the reasons that we minimize the activities here is because we want you out there. We want you involved in a committee, some meet, committee meeting or coaching or refing. So here's what people don't ever think about. But here's what I think about. When you're sitting up there in the stands yelling and screaming at how the ref is blind and should have a cane and, you know, you know needs a color by numbers book for the rules. You know, when you're standing up to that, what, here's what you forget. You forget that that's probably a dad who may have a kid sitting in the stands next to you, around you. You see, the reason I think about that is because I was a kid sitting in the stands. I was a kid that was sitting in the stands when my dad was reffing high school football or high school basketball. I was the kid who, and again, 
this will date me, but I was a kid who was sitting in the stands back in the late 60s. We lived about an hour and a half from, Chicago, uh, from Detroit during the race riots in Detroit. And I was the guy who was sitting in the stands listening to people yell at the referees on how horrible they were and the racist and blah, 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 blah. And I was a kid whose dad came home and said, I'm done refereeing high school football. Because he had a buddy who was refereeing another game in another place that got knifed after the game over high school football. My dad says, it's not worth losing my life over. Well, my dad loved the sport. My dad looked at it as an opportunity to help and encourage kids. And that's why he, got on, that's why he put on a ref shirt all the time. And I just tell people, you know what? If you're such a whiz on all the rules, go get your license and ref. Oh, I don't want to do that. You know, nobody will let you know you. Well, that's a whole different. Yeah. yeah. Okay, then stop your whining and complaining and griping. Go serve. You want to talk about how bad all the coaches are? Good. Go coach. Change it. Be different. I mean, that's, that, is that not what we're here for? You want to talk about something that you're passionate about? Go serve somewhere. Because that's what you see Nehemiah do. Here's the other thing you see with Nehemiah. You see a sacrifice that we don't pay attention to. I mean, think about it for a minute. This guy was at the right hand of the king of Persia, which controlled most of the known empire, the world at that time. He was eating the finest foods. He was drinking the finest wine. He had an incredible place to live. And he is now in Jerusalem with barely, a maybe at best, a tent over his head and getting the king's seconds as a governor's provision and then saying, I'm not going to take all of that even. I'm going to sacrifice to help these people. And yet, this guy was willing to say, I'll do it. This guy was willing to say, I'll sacrifice. I'm not too good to go out and work on the wall. I'm going to be right there beside everybody. And this idea of learning to sacrifice, uh, kids, listen to me. Well, kids who are packing shoeboxes, teenagers who are packing shoeboxes, it's really easy to go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff and throw in a shoebox. That's just money. It's really hard to take one of your favorite toys and put it in a shoebox and let some other kid enjoy it. That's a sacrificial giving. That's something that means something that has value to you. And, and, and I want to encourage you. We always encourage our kids to try to pick one toy that they really like that was one of their favorites and put it in a shoebox. Why? Because I wanted to teach my kids something about a sacrificial kind of giving. You know, most of us, the reality, myself included, most of us, we give our abundance. Not out, of, not out of our sacrifice. We help somebody out of our abundance, out of our extra. And, and Nehemiah here, it, it, real genuine leadership, real genuine Christianity says, you know what, I'll, I'll sacrifice. If I need to sacrifice to help somebody else. I understand what a sacrifice it is of your time to get involved with somebody else's life. I, I get that. But sacrificial leadership is what God wants of us. We follow a Savior who gave the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, that's what Philippians chapter 2 says. Jesus could have sat in heaven and said, I'm not doing that. What? Wrap myself up as a man? Wrap humanity around me? Live like they have to live? 
What? Leave all of this? You've got to be kidding me. And what? You want me to go to a cross? You want me who knows nothing of death to die? That's why Philippians says, you want the kind of mind of Christ? Then you have to have that kind of humility that says, I will sacrifice, I will serve, I will do what I want to have. Parents, or couples, let me talk to couples for a second. You want to know how to have a great marriage? Learn to sacrifice for your spouse. And learn to find joy in it. Get up, to, get up tomorrow morning and say, you know what? And, and I'm glad my wife has the thankful thing, and you need to be grateful, but here's what I would challenge you to do. I challenge you tomorrow to get up and say, those of you who are married, how can I sacrifice and do something for my spouse today? Oh, they'll just take advantage of it. So what? So what? You know? Oh, you don't understand. They would just, they would just abuse. Wait, wait, time out. How do you know? You give me a marriage where two people are trying to sacrifice and outserve each other, I'll show you a phenomenal marriage. Um, one of the things that's happened, when my wife went back to work full-time, she used to work three days a week, and then she went back to work full-time. And, and, and when she went back to work, I, I made a couple of promises. Because I knew, I knew that how hard it was going to be. And so I said, I will take care of the meals Monday through Friday. Now, you need to know. <laughs> at this point in our relationship, that meant we were going to have mac and cheese and hamburger. And she will tell you, she thought this would last what? How long would, did you probably give it? Three days. Three days. <laughs> I was going to give myself a couple of weeks, but three days. <laughs> and I decided that I was going to learn how to cook. So I started watching all the shows. Um, Iron Chef, um, Chopped, you know, where you just go and get a bunch of ingredients they have to make stuff. And I started to learn how to cook. And here's what I found. I found that I started to really enjoy it. Okay? And I, what I found was, guys, listen, this is like the best kept secret in the world. Okay? All cooking is, is like a really fancy shop inside because they have the coolest tools, okay? I mean, they have some of the coolest tools you can get. And believe me, if I think, you know, I've got, I've got all the gadgets. I, if I think it's a kitchen gadget, I got it. Um, but I started doing it, and, and I started to realize, that, you know what? I found an incredible joy for me in knowing that my wife can walk in at home and there's a meal ready for her when she walks in the door. Now, what that means is sometimes I'm up here at 4.30, and I leave at 4.30 and fly home and start making dinner by the time she's home at 5, 5.15. Now, she then turns around, and she says, the way I can sacrifice to help him is I can do the dishes. So in our home, I cook, she does dishes. And that, let me tell you something. If, you're, if you like working in a kitchen and do the chef thing, okay, it's awesome because you don't have to worry about how many pans or anything, you know. Um, so I think I get the better end of the deal. But here's the thing. We got two people trying to outserve each other when it comes to dinner on Monday through Friday. Um, and it's great. It is awesome. I love it. In fact, when she gets in my kitchen, 
and wants to like cook beside me, it's like, I'm sorry, you know, this is, this is like, this is sacred ground here, you know? And you get two people in a marriage trying to outserve each other. It's awesome. It's awesome. Trying to out-sacrifice for each other. It's awesome. Instead of it being about you, instead of it being about how you can rotate it all around you and what, what, what you're it needs to be about sacrificing for one for another. And, and, and that's what I want to encourage you with. I want to encourage you that when you get up tomorrow morning, you don't put your head in your pillow tomorrow night unless you can look back and look at somebody you serve or somebody you helped that day. Parents, when your kids come home from school, what do you usually ask them? What's the standard question? Huh? How was your day? Change it up. Here's a question for this week. Who did you serve today? Uh, kids, be warned. Okay? I could get that question tomorrow. So think about who you're going to help, who you're going to serve. See, that, that's a sacrificial kind of life. That's what Jesus did when he came. He sacrificed on, constantly, not about him, but about who he could serve and who he could help. That's who we're trying to, we call ourselves Christians. That's who we're trying to model, right or wrong. Nehemiah does it in a phenomenal way. And the last thing you see is this idea of some, some leadership principles that I think just help us. That, you know what? It's not, Nehemiah, it wasn't about him. It was about the people he could serve, the people that he could minister to. It was about that internal relationship that he had with God, that at the end of the day, he could just simply pray a simple prayer. Lord, I hope you understand the heart with which I'm trying to help these people and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And Lord, it's about me serving you, and it's about you noticing I don't care what anybody else thinks. And it's not about whether or not people acknowledged me or people recognized what I did or... People patted me on the back. Kids, please hear me. We have, we have, those of you who are teenagers in college and that kind of thing, honestly, we failed you. Because we, we put you into a, into a world as a kid in which we patted you on the back and applauded you for everything. To the point that if somebody doesn't applaud you, you think you've done something wrong. And the reality of it is, you know what, There's, I had a pastor that helped me understand this a long time ago. As a pastor, there are pastors who try to please everybody. And there are pastors who try to please a certain group of people. But if you're going to be a good pastor, I was taught you, 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 you pastor for an audience of one. At the end of the day, you go back and you go, God... Are you pleased with what I did today as a pastor? You know, I, I share this to people. You know, you, you don't realize, you don't, you don't understand my world. But in my world, I'll, I'll, I'll get home, and my wife has heard this question so many times. It's, it's, I'll look at her and I'll go, did any of that make sense today? Because you walk away going, I hope, you know, that, boy, if I could have a do-over, I'd love a mulligan on that service. And I learned a long time ago. I need to be able to walk off the platform and God be pleased. And honestly, I really don't care what you think. You go, well, you should. Well, I don't. <laughs> because I'm trying to live my life for an audience of one. At the end of the day, I want God to be pleased. And kids, if somebody pats you on the back, great. And if somebody doesn't, great. 
It's not about who pats you on the back. It's about the end of your day. Is God pleased with the way you lived your life? Period. And if the answer to that is yes, then you've done what you're required to do. If the answer to that is no, then you change tomorrow what you need to do differently that you didn't do that day. That's what it is. And it is so important that we grasp this. And and that's so important because I I think, so at the end of the day, here's what I, I come to the end of the day and I go, Lord, you know, is there somebody I serve today? Hopefully at the end of every one of my days, my answer is at least my wife. And if other people get added into that, awesome. Because I know that God specifically says, um, as a husband, if you want me to listen to your prayers, you better treat that woman right. So I take that verse very, I take that verse very, very seriously. There are not a lot of verses where God says, I don't listen to you. One of them is, he does say, I won't listen to you if you, if you don't treat your wife right. So I, I, believe me, you know, it's like, honey, please, have I treated you right today? It's an audience of one. And that's what you see with Nehemiah. So I end it this way this morning. Nehemiah illustrates what a good leader should be. He leads by serving and setting an example. He sacrifices to help others. He desires that God pay attention to what he's done and the reasons he's done it. And he lives his life for the approval of one, God. Let's do the same thing this week. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, it's easy sometimes to get our eyes off of you. It's easy for us, Lord, in a world and in a culture and an American system, Lord, that uh, so often just wants us to focus on us and all the things that we deserve and all the things that should happen for us. But, Lord, we're not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve you. And, Lord, there's a world around us that needs Christ. There's a world around us that needs help. There's, a, there's opportunities every time we turn around. Open our eyes, Lord, to show where we can make a difference in our little part of our world. And when it is all said and done, Lord, may people who see us see Christ in us. And uh, may you use it, Lord, to bring them to you. These things we ask in your name. Amen.